And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jeff Weaver, who grew up in a tiny Vermont town near the Canadian border, became a household name, at least in politics, in 2016 as a campaign manager for his old friend and client, Bernie Sanders. He's written a book about that experience called How Bernie Won, Inside the Revolution That's Taken Back Our Country and Where We Go From Here. And where where he goes from here and where Bernie Sanders goes from here was one of the things we talked about when he came by the Institute of Politics last week and sat down with me. Jeff Weaver, welcome uh, here and welcome to the Institute of Politics. It's good to see you again. Um, you come from as probably as f- close to being in Canada as one can yes. come. Uh, tell me about St. Albans, Vermont. Yeah, so St. Albans, Vermont, well, it's changed a lot since I was a kid. It uh, was a conservative democratic area, had more cows than people. I went to high school with substantial number of people who spoke French at home uh, as their first language. And you, your, your folks were yeah, yeah, French, French, French Canadian, Canadian. Absolutely, huh? absolutely. My mother's maiden name is Champagne. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's that's, <laughs> that's how good. French Canadian. That's how French Canadian it is. <laughs> so yeah, you know, in those days, the border was. You know, we talk about open borders these days. When I grew up, the border with Quebec was basically an open border. You could drive back and forth, waving, being waved through. Uh, so there was a lot of a lot more uh, interaction across the border than there, than than there is now, certainly. But and your dad ran a pet shop there. My dad had a pet shop. He did a bunch of jobs, but he his final uh, job in life was having a pet store in. Uh, in St. Albans, which he loved very much. He also, he worked for many years at a, a utility as a late night, the person you called when your power went out, uh, he would dispatch the trucks uh, for folks. So it was a nice place to grow up. I mean, uh, it was uh, obviously uh, homogenous in some ways. There were two Catholic churches. It was an Irish Catholic church on the hill and a French Catholic church below the So tracks. it was diverse. It was diverse. That's yeah. right. We had Irish Catholics and French Catholics. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the major minority was Methodist. That, that was... <laughs> And uh, I read somewhere that uh, years later when you were working with uh, Bernie Sanders, he was in your town and fielding a press call or something in your dad's pet shop while the cockatoos were holding (laughs) forth. Screaming in the, you know, those days there was no cell phone. So when you wanted to call somebody, you had to find a telephone. So we went to my father's uh, pet store and he had this giant, uh, very beautiful cockatoo. And it was screaming in the background. And the AP reporter in Montpelier, the capital, was said, Bernie, where are you? It sounds like you're in the jungle somewhere. Yeah. I also remember driving with Bernie from one town to another late for a live radio show. And we were desperately looking for a payphone as the host is on the air saying, I don't know where Mayor Sanders is. Where could he be? You know, no self. Had just a very different world in those days. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. I'll say. And I'm sure there are days when he probably misses those 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 days. Yeah. I, Every Every politician of a certain age probably does. There was a kind of charm to that when you had a few moments to collect your thoughts before before being thrown in the maelstrom. No, that's right. I mean, now you get in the car and it's just another period of work, right? There's phone calls and, as you know, you know, sometimes multiple cell phones being passed to a candidate back and forth, and there just is no sort of uh, downtime to write or think or get your bearings. Now, were you you were you deeply interested in politics as a kid? I was not uh, deeply interested in politics as a kid. I was interested in sort of political theory as a kid. Uh, I became sort of uh, politicized when I was at Boston University uh, as a, in undergraduate school. I became involved f- first in the Soviet Jewry movement and then in the anti-apartheid movement. Why in the Soviet Jewry movement? 
Uh, I was a Russian area studies major at the time, and uh, I had met, uh, you know, there were a number of Jewish students at uh, BU, and I became uh, involved. They, I was convinced to go down to a, an annual lobby they had in D.C. at that time uh, to lobby members of Congress on behalf of Soviet Jewry. And I had a geography professor who heard I was going, and she said, I have a friend I would like you to meet. And uh, I, I met this woman, and her mother was still in the Soviet Union, and uh, was they weren't letting her leave. And uh, I brought her case, actually, to Pat Leahy, Mm-hmm. Uh, Vermont Your senator. senator. Exactly. And uh, he raised it with Soviet officials, and she was ultimately released. It was sort of uh, early That's example gratifying. to me of uh, political political activism paying off. And then I was arrested in anti-apartheid uh, protests uh, at BU and uh, unceremoniously, uh, unceremoniously asked to leave. Uh, and that's when I met up, met up with Bernie Sanders in the summer of you. You set up shanty towns. We did. We did. Other on schools. Campus. Other schools were doing it. It seemed to go fine. At VU, that was John Silver. I don't know if you remember John yeah, Silver. Yeah, I who do. Who went on to notorious. a career in politics? Yes. Yes. yes notorious right winger. Anyway, he uh, he was not going to tolerate that, and we were. Uh, well, there was, a, and also you hung banners out of your. I did. I did. We, we, we they tried to throw us out of the dorms. The Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts uh, represented us in court, and we won actually that. We won actually that case, and they said there was no institution in Massachusetts that had more uh, civil rights violations or civil liberties violations uh, lodged against it than the Boston University under John Silver at that time. Why did the uh, Why did the apart- anti-apartheid movement so seize you so that so much so that you? Cost you your your uh, your yeah, place it, there. Yeah, it was such a clear uh, and compelling example of injustice in the world. Uh, you know, here you had uh, just a brutal regime uh, that was keeping down the vast majority of people in that country, uh, obviously along racial lines. Uh, and you know, Boston University, uh, John Silber was uh, a big fan of Ronald Reagan. You know, he was bringing speakers. You know. You wouldn't call them pro-apartheid speakers, but there were certainly apologists for apartheid speakers onto campus, uh, and it was it was just it just you know moved me very much that uh, an institution that I was paying a lot of money to uh, was involved in in uh, supporting that regime. You know, and BU had at that time there were a number of departments. The International Relations Department uh, had. Uh, strong relationships with the Contra rebels in uh, Central America. There was eventually a scandal at the communication school involving the CIA, uh, sending students there to be trained as journalists and then sending them to uh, foreign countries to join news organizations and report back, you know, uh, stuff on the AP and the UPI and others. So, you know, BU at that point was really sort of had become a sort of uh, hub of uh, far-right intelligentsia and was being used in that way to build credibility for people who would then support that kind of uh, agenda around the world. And it was very disturbing. One of the ways you cleansed yourself was to go back and work for a socialist mayor of <laughs> yes, Burlington running for governor. Yeah, running for governor at that time, right, as as an independent uh, against Madeleine Cunin, who was uh, in the middle of her first two-year term when Bernie uh, announced uh, and uh, for the record, Madeleine Cunin was one of the few uh, Democrats in Vermont in 2016 who uh, supported Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, which was a, <laughs> a small minority of people. Vermont is the only state during the uh, during the primary process where once a, ca- a candidate swept all of the delegates. So uh, it, it, that was certainly a minority position. In so, Vermont. but but back in in '86, what was it that that drew you to uh, to Bernie? Well, I you know I had been quote-unquote radicalized at, uh, at uh, uh, undergraduate school, and I came back home, again, to this sort of sleepy place, uh, 
And uh, I was looking for, you know, what am I going to do now? I'm kicked out of college, right? I don't have a job. And, uh, you know, he was running. And I called down to his office to see if I could help out. And uh, a guy named Phil Fremonti came up, who has been a friend of mine now for decades, came up and then should have been my first warning, David. By the time he left my house, I was the county coordinator for a gubernatorial <laughs> campaign with absolutely no political experience uh, whatsoever. It seemed good at the time, but in hindsight, it was, yeah. should have been a warning. See, I don't know about him, but this cockatoo seems pretty <laughs> yeah, sharp. Yeah, right, so. exactly. <laughs> so I met Bernie at an event when he came. I, I staffed him at an event. He came up uh, to in, in Franklin County. And, uh, you know, we, I guess we hit it off, and he called me up and said, can you come down and work in Burlington a couple of days a week? And it's been, I don't know, how many years is that now? 30 years since then. How, which is, which is the greatest thing in, in politics is when you have these long-term relationships where – of trust, where you you really know how someone thinks. And yeah, someone, absolutely. What um, what was it then? What what do you recall about your initial interactions with him? I mean, I, I will tell you that um, the impression of him generally is that he believes deeply in what he believes, yes, and completely sincerely doesn't have a whole lot of time for kind of social niceties. He's got more important things on his mind. Right. Uh, and I tr- I assume he was like that then. Yeah, he was. And, it, you know, in, fu- in some ways, you know, we were going around the state and he was, you know, he would meet with small groups of people, eight, ten people, you know, far cry from the 30,000, you know, person crowds he had in 2016. But, you know, in some ways it w- there were similarities because at that point he was mayor of Burlington, not that well-known uh, or understood. And that, was, that itself was... Uh, a national story when he yeah, won absolutely. that race, absolutely, because he 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 was uh, he was clearly on the left. He ran, came out of nowhere, you know. Yeah, he so. knocked off a machine, you know, machine politician uh, in Burlington. Uh, but you know, but outside the Burlington, you know, Burlington in Vermont, Burlington, you know, you look at it as a small city, but in Vermont, Burlington is the big city, right? Yes. And so, uh, among rural people and small town people, Burlington is looked at what at that time was looked at as sort of like the big city, and so people didn't know really what to make of him outside of Burlington. So he had a lot of work to do. I, the truth of the matter is, he ended up being very, very popular uh, with rural people in particular, I think, who appreciated his sincerity uh, and understood that he was, you know, believe what he said. You know, let me ask you a question about that, because um, he did my very first Axe Files 277 shows ago. And, well, who's counting, David? Yeah. Well, you know, I like to, I have a little meter on my desk. <laughs> um, but, uh, and one of the things I talked to him about was, was guns. And uh, I asked him, and I actually really appreciated his candor. I said, if you were representing Brooklyn, where you grew up, rather than Vermont, would your position be have been different on on guns? Because he had been, you know, sort of moderate on the issue, and he said probably so. Yeah. Um, Although I got to tell you, in Vermont, you know, his position in Vermont, particularly. Uh, in the 80s, uh, when he was running for first trying to run for Congress, you know, was really very, considered very extremely left. You know, Howard Dean uh, had an A-plus rating from the NRA throughout his entire career. He would never have touched guns with a 10-foot pole. And Bernie in 88, when he ran for Congress and lost by three points, you know, he was the only, again, running as an independent, both the Democrat and Republican, 
both pledged that they would not ban assault weapons. And he was he said, no, I will I will ban assault weapons in mm-hmm. 1988. And uh, so, you know, there's in a you know, the course of a presidential campaign, there's a lot of nuance that gets lost, as you well know, um, as people try to paint you with broad brushstrokes. But the truth of the matter is, is that in Vermont, certainly Bernie was uh, way out front in terms of the assault weapons ban ahead of everybody. Yeah, else. I mean, there are other issues. I'm not, I'm not yeah, prosecuting yeah. No, 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 him. No, no, right, I'm right, really right. making another point, yeah, yeah, which no, no. is that um, uh, he, um, you know, you you are elected to represent your state. And uh, plainly, the fact that the state, there was a large rural population, lots of hunters and so on. Right. He clearly talked to folks about that, that informed some. He, 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 he had a nuanced position on the issue. The, 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 the thing is that in the times in which we live, it's hard to have a nuanced position on, right. that, uh, on that issue. Well, I mean, you know, apropos of like where I grew up. You know, in many people's homes, you will go into the living room, and one of the major sort of pieces of furniture is a glass gun case, gun which has cannon, five or yeah. six guns in it. There's The ammunition is lying on a shelf below, and no one thinks anything about it. N- yeah. Nor would anybody think that that would be something that you would take and use for some nefarious purpose. It's just yeah, one of the things you have. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, thing, that, uh, the thing that's so difficult— is how do we get to have how do we have a reasoned discussion on this? You know, Obama had a debate when he was in the state senate with a rural a rural legislator, and he said, "You know, I know, and I think I've said this here before, but I know that um, you know you grew up with guns, and you you know your dad took you out at dawn hunting, and his dad did the same, right. and this you know big part of 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 your of your life and of your of of what what is is typical in your communities in my community though uh, i've got parents who wait by the window anxiously hoping that their kids don't get shot on the way home and he said there has to be a way to uh to 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 protect your traditions and art and 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 the children in my Area and he's right about that, and Amen. we ought to be able to have, uh, but we can't. We can't because of, um, well, frankly, because of the way the issue has been weaponized. And here, you know, I'm sure people, because it has, people who, if there are people listening on the right here, they would say, well, weaponized by gun control advocates. Uh, but really, the NRA is kind of an industry now. Yeah, absolutely. And and they speak for an industry. I mean, they're really, you know, they 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 have weaponized this issue on behalf of the gun industry, right? And, and, and look, shrouded look, it in in uh, in uh, you know intimations about um, autocracy and the over, overweening government and yeah. Um, and let me let's be clear. I mean, the NRA has become. You know, an adjunct to the Republican Party. There's no, I mean, it is a wildly partisan organization. I mean, I remember when Bernie first got elected to the House of Representatives, there were a lot of uh, much many more rural Democrats, right? And the views on on uh, gun legislation within the Democratic Party was was much more diverse in terms of positioning, and it was much more urban-rural. Now it's completely a partisan issue, right? And Republicans, you know, use it to try to beat beat up Democrats. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh- yeah, it's interesting to see how this, if and how this issue evolves. It feels like that Parkland 
shooting was a bit of a watershed. We'll see how, certainly in suburban areas, the issue has uh, has changed, but so have suburban voters. Yes. So you, uh, you ultimately did uh, go back to college at the University of Vermont? I did, yes. Between campaigns, uh, you know, Bernie, I worked with Bernie in 86, where he was not successful in running for governor. I worked with him in 88, he ran for Congress and lost by three points. Uh, and then in 90, he came back and uh, had a sort of rerun against the Republican who had beaten him uh, two years earlier, and uh, he won in 1990. And then I came down to D.C. with him. Yeah, it says a lot about uh, your relationship that you you lost all these races and he still wanted you back. Yeah, right, right. Well, I wasn't, you know, at that, you know, those campaigns were, very, you know, very different than what you what I understand now, like a modern, how you run yes. a modern campaign. They were very, uh, you know, Bernie did a lot of the quote unquote running of the campaign. It was very few people. The amount of money was, you know, when I look back on it, like very, very little. You know, although we ran TV advertising, certainly in 88 and 90. Um Probably but not that expensive in Vermont. N- not that, and then not that expensive. Yeah. And I'm sure the ads were homemade, and mm-hmm. um, so there was no production expense or very little. So it was, you know, not yeah. a lot of money on makeup and wardrobe. No, <laughs> exactly hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and so you went down, and you you also uh, uh, you you attended law school. Did you do that while you after I, you went I, down I, there? I did. I did. I don't tell people at Georgetown because they tell you you can't work. While you're going to the first year of law school, but I would, too late now. I would work on the hill. I, yeah, right, I would work on the hill, and I, Georgetown Law School is on the is on Capitol Hill, so I would leave the hill to go to class and then go back go back to the hill. So I I was I did it was okay with Bernie. Yeah, yeah, it was fine. I mean, yes, I just went. You know, class time isn't that much. You have to, then you have to cram your studying in at night. Uh, and then uh, my after my second year, I did a summer you know sort of traditional summer associate gig at a firm, and uh, my. I, then I left Bernie's office and worked at that firm for three years. You left out one significant part of your biography, which oh. is your own brief campaign as a candidate. I, w- I was actually a candidate twice. I ran. Uh, I ran for alderman um, in St. Albans. In St. Albans, in uh, the most conservative ward in the city, in a three-year race, did, did, didn't didn't do well. And then I ran for mayor of that of the, that city. Following in the footsteps of the man himself. Well, that's what my opponents were saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I got almost 40% of the vote. My opponent had the endorsement, endorsement of both parties. I was 24. Uh, I won the sort of working class side of the city, barely. And then in the hill section, I was, you know, slaughtered. It was, it was an interesting uh, lesson in class politics, even in a place like that. Yeah, didn't leave you with the bug to want to ever do it again. No, you know, no, not really. Uh, I've done, <laughs> I've done that, and uh, I much prefer the role I have now. You know, there's plenty of great people running for office, and you know, frankly, David, as you know, you know, the, in many ways, the environment is so toxic. Uh, I, I don't, I don't understand how anybody runs for office, frankly. Yeah, is that what you're saying to Bernie when he's deciding whether to run in? No, uh, look, I, I'm uh, you know 20? I'm very I'm very clear. But the last three words of my book are "run, Bernie, run." So I'm uh-huh. I'm very clear about what he, what I think he should do. But you know, it's ultimately his his decision. He, what uh, I don't want to leap ahead because I I want to follow the your own story here. But on, on that subject, because you raised it, it is politics is so coarse today and so uh, difficult. And uh, what is it about him that he seems, uh, I mean, there were times when he got 
irascible in uh, occasionally uh, <laughs> and reacted when he was attacked and so on. But uh, generally, he he seems to uh, to take the incoming, uh, and he seems you know to keep on heading forward. What is it about him that allows him to uh, endure the environment? Yeah, he's always had. This goes way back from the early days. He's always had the conviction that if he can just talk to enough people about his ideas and the you know the policy agenda that he's advocating, that he'll be successful. And this is true in the presidential race. You know, when he would count the number of you know, we go to Iowa and he would hold rallies, and he would he kept a rolling track of how many actual people attended the rallies, uh, just because he wanted to know what percent of the eventual electorate he actually talked to basically in person, right? And he would he was always very, you know, some of us would make the case, well, many more people will see part of this rally on television than in person. And he's like, no, 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 I don't care about that. I want to know how many actual people I'm talking to. Uh, so he's always had that. And so he keeps his head, you know, he keeps his head down. He puts his shoulder harder into the wheel and he tries to talk to more people about the sort of vision he articulates. And he's He's confident that if he can again do that to enough with enough people, he'll be successful. There were, uh, they were, uh, they came in in oblique ways, but stories written attacks that were uh, probably propagated by people who wanted to stop him about his wife and her tenure at as head of Burlington College and so on. That must have been difficult. Yeah, no, clearly, clearly it was, and yes, they were propagated. I mean, you know the. The chief propagator was uh, Trump's campaign manager in Vermont. So, I mean, I don't think it's any that'll come as a surprise to anybody. But yeah, it's very difficult. Uh, and you know, I mean, you've been with a candidate too when their family gets attacked or they get attacked yeah. in an unfair way, particularly when you go after their family. You know, it really uh, it really hurts. I mean, even look like you know Ted Cruz when his father was accused of being you know one of the Kennedy assassins or. Um, of course, he's gotten over it. He's he loves President Trump now. Uh, no, apparently that's apparently they they're kissed, tight. they've kissed and made up. Yes, but but you know you know you've been in the heat of a campaign, and when yeah. family members get attacked, it's, it's yeah. And I you know and I've always I find it uh, really distasteful. You know, I it's one of the things that really bothered me was you know I, I think the you know I mean I'm you you and I may have a different view on this. I get beaten up by the left on this all the time. I don't like chasing people into restaurants when they're there with their family, and and I don't. There have to be some, you know, you've been a practitioner of politics for a long time. You've worked with an elected yes. official. You know, because my feeling is once you once you knock norms down, once this is my objection to the president, once you shred what, what used to be norms, you know, like there are zones beyond which, right. you know, then it, you never get them back. And if, 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 if the left can chase Sarah Sanders or someone else into a restaurant and chase their family out, the right's going to do the same thing. And we're in this mad cycle of, you know, and I'm not sure it contributes anything to the, to me, it, it's more an act of frustration than a, something constructive. You know? right. And I understand the frustration, but. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day that you, you have to, you have to beat them at the ballot box. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, that's how you are vindicated in politics in a democracy is beating them at the ballot box. I mean, you know, apropos of the sort of norms, you know, I, I remember, God, how many years ago was it now? I was at a Christmas mass and uh, the priest who had a thick Irish brogue, I mean, he was like right from Ireland, you know, spoke against the war. Uh, and 
a fully dressed, fully uniformed Virginia state policeman walked to the front of the church and sort of scolded him and then walked out. Like that's, you know, that so it works both ways. Yes, you know what of I mean? course, yeah. Um, and to see a sort of p- p- policeman in a, you know, in the Virginia uniform is fairly military looking, you know, scolding a cleric for yeah. talking against the war. I mean, you know, that that's, I think what you're talking about, this sort of breakdown. Well, we get and, into, we, you know, it's a mad cycle down, you know, right. where uh, one thing begets another thing and, uh, and, and you wonder... Uh, where it all leads, and I, I look. I thoroughly, thoroughly agree with you. I mean, I'm a believer. I wrote a book called Believer. I, I'm a believer, and it, it wasn't about a person. It was about this uh, idea of democracy, and that that's the there is one self-correcting. Uh, there is one corrective in a democracy, and that is the vote. Right. And, um, uh, but you know, David, that's you know, that, but that's been weaponized too. I mean, you know, Republicans, as you know. Working very hard because they don't want to compete yes. fairly at the ballot box, and so they do things to, you know, well, to that, make it and, harder and for that, people to vote. And right? that, I mean, and that, to me, is an absolutely um, uh, important battle to fight. I mean, my view is that every we should want every single person absolutely uh, to participate in elections, and we shouldn't game the system in any way. And anyone who does should be prevented from doing that. And uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think if you if you feel like you are uh, if you feel like you are advantaged if fewer people vote, uh, that could be a sign that you shouldn't win. <laughs> right, right. You know. Um, so you you stick you stuck with uh, with with Bernie Sanders throughout his um, throughout his time in the House, and you ran his campaign for the Senate. Yeah, right. So I, I left, to, I worked the law firm for a few years, and then he called me back, and I was his house chief of staff for a number of years. And then, yeah, in 2005. Uh, what kind of law did you practice in those two years? So I did government contracts law. So I worked for an illustrious a number of government contractors uh, in their uh, never-ending pushing money back and forth across the table with the government. Um, so United Technologies and companies like that. Uh, it was actually, a, you know, it was an important... Uh, moment for me because I really got to see sort of how corporate America works and what the structure is like, you what the culture. Well, just the way, you know, just the way information's passed, the, the, you know, the culture of how big corporations work. I mean, I just think it's, I think too few people on the left understand that world at all, right? Mm-hmm. They have conceptions about it. Uh, in some ways, it's much less nefarious than people think, you know, it's collections of people trying to make a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, people will do things at times that are like in any other endeavor that are not appropriate uh, in order to you know achieve their end, but uh, but it was it was an interesting window for me uh, coming from my small town and working for the you know uh, congressman from Vermont. Yeah, you um, uh, you you so you worked with him. You ran the campaign. Um, yeah, we had a self-funded opponent in two thousand and six. A guy who just sold his. Uh, company he had built a medical software company he had sold it and he had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars I mean in cash in his bank account and the most that anyone had ever spent in a Senate race in Vermont this is going to sound quaint to people who are familiar with politics was you know Pat Leahy had spent two million in the prior yeah. uh, election cycle so it's lunch money today yeah right two million dollars run a Senate race so uh so but you know for us that was a lot of a lot of money and the end of the day at the end of the day our opponent ended up spending Eight million dollars, and we spent over six million dollars. 
uh, most of it raised and, through direct mail. This is before yeah. the, inter- the advent of internet fundraising to a large. And how much of it came from Vermont? Uh, I'm sure a relatively small, uh-huh. relatively small. Because Vermont is a not a huge uh, fundraising. No, no, right. Uh, I mean, we base. had a lot of we had a lot of. I mean, in, in terms of donations, we had a lot of Vermont donations, but right. they were relatively small donations compared to uh, um, what you would get nationally. Uh, and then you, uh, I, I have to uh, ask you about your foray into the comic book business. Yeah. Do you still have your store? I do still have my store. In fact, I, I was last weekend. I was at the New York Comic Con. It's quite a, quite a, quite a place. So tell me about this fascination. I have to tell you, um, I had it once in my possession when I was a kid. Almost every uh, inaugural issue of Marvel, you know, Thor and Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had the most uh, extraordinary collection of comic books. I vent about this every once in a while. Uh, I also had a great collection of baseball cards and autographs, like Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson. Yeah, and, right. I mean, just... And I made the mistake of not securing them before I went to college, and my mother wanted to reclaim my room and just threw it out. Thinking this, well, you're not. This is this is not an uncommon story, as you know, David. Yeah, I know, but it's one that sticks in my craw. I'll tell you that. But how much would like a the first edition of Spider Man uh, yes. yield today? So the first appearance of Spider Man, sort of on the you know, it's it, that in that hobby, it's very grade driven, right? The nicer the book is, the more it brings. But you know, so the range on that book would be anywhere from fifteen thousand to two million dollars. <sighs> Depending on the condition. All right. Yours so, is probably uh, your Now, let me just red. say the reason I want to have this discussion is even though she's she's uh, slipped her earthly bonds, I, I still have this notion that my mom knows what I'm doing. Right. And if she's listening to this podcast, mom, do you hear that? Do you hear what you threw out? Uh, but anyway, so tell me. But about it wasn't it. worth it, wasn't worth that then. I loved it though, man. I love, we used to, I mean, I was a voracious. Uh, reader of comic books. I remember there was a blackout in New York in 1966, and uh, so school, you know, every there was going to be no school the next day. And a friend of mine, mine and I went into the staircase of my. Uh, I lived in a housing project, a housing development in New York, and we just took uh, flashlights and yeah. just read comic books for hours. Uh, I, I, I mean, I. Yeah, I was changing them. And- I was a voracious comic book reader as a kid too. So was Bernie, by the way. You should know. Is that right? He tells you stories about he and his brother would and friends of theirs would trade comic books. You know, he was living obviously in in Brooklyn, but uh, you know, I was in Vermont in a small place, and it was really a way to. I mean, it was really an escape, right? Yeah. This is before twenty four hour TV, and the you know people don't remember the days of the. You know the staticky late night television, the flame, the planes flying, the the national anthem, and like you know there was, you know three TV stations. And yeah, it was just a different. Like now, there's so much uh, entertainment on your phone or on the big screen or whatever. But there were you know comic books for quite a few generations were a major form of escapist entertainment. And did you have uh, did you favor? Uh, did you? I mean, I was kind of like a Marvel yeah. and a DC. Yeah, I was too. Uh, I was too. I was too. So I so I just you know I decided to, after spending a couple of years as the Senate chief of staff that I was just done with politics and so why know, 
because you, you get tired of it after a while, David. It's, t- it's tough, right? Uh, you know, I ran the Senate campaign. I, I went, to, you know, was in Vermont uh, for six months. I went Monday through Friday to Vermont. I had little kids. Um, Back in D.C. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. in Northern Virginia. Yeah, so I just wanted to do something else. And so I thought I would do that. And uh, my daughter runs the store now. Uh, so... Anyway, nice been, family business. Yeah, it's been successful. I don't know that it's a business uh, that I can pass on to them ultimately. If the, if the interest will still be there in the in the world for uh, comic books, but it's but a profit making venture. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I have and, seven employees. Uh huh. And is that? Uh, I know that you have this side gig, which is looking after the 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 Sanders. Uh, well, that's really my primary gig. The comic book business is the well, side. Is you're the just side saying gig. that because you think Bernie may hear the it's podcast. The, it's the side, the side gig now. But I, you know, I was happily there until I got the call in, you know, 2015. Yeah, um, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, I, I remember when uh, he decided that he was going to run. Not a whole lot of people took that very seriously. I mean, I remember from my own time in the Senate. I remember going to the Senate caucus. He always was sitting by himself. Uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was a solitary figure, and he had issues that he raised that others weren't raising and so on. Uh, but nobody really thought of him. You wouldn't look around and see this kind of rumpled, wild-haired guy sitting by himself and say, this is the guy in the room who's going to be president of the United States. going to excite the millennial generation. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, tell me about the pro- that, that process of deciding that he was going to, to run. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I have to tell you, like I chronicle this in my book, he called me up for a meeting. Uh, and, you know, as you point out, Bernie's, you know, very focused on his work and like social niceties. So like when you, when I work with him, I, you know, we talk every day and often multiple meet and so on and so forth. But when you're not working with him, even if you were. He's not saying coming over and have a beer. Yeah, there's not like a lot of. Coming over and have a bowl of Ben and Jerry's. He doesn't right, say right. that. Right, right. I mean, you know, I would get invited to the holiday party and I would go to that. But other than that, you didn't really hear from him much. So I got a call from him out of the blue asking if I wanted to have dinner. So we went and had dinner at Union Station and it was just all chit chat. Right, like how are you doing? How are your kids doing? I was helping coach my kids' little league teams. How's your store doing? And like you know, just like if I, you and I went out to dinner at some point, you like you're done sort of talking, and people go home. And I went home, and my wife said, uh, "What did he want?" And I was like, "I have no idea. This isn't before he, you know, but this is not clearly he wanted something." And then. You know, it became clear after watching news. You know, he did this tour around the country, this sort of like pre-tour, went to Iowa and a few places. So it became clear that he was thinking about running for president. And then he called me up again, and we went to dinner again. This was right before he announced, the day before he announced. And I said, are we going to talk about today what we were supposed to talk about last time? And, I, you know, I just think— Why didn't he talk to you about it the last I think he was trying to gauge how good my life was and whether I, oh, he, I should, he should say— you should throw all that away and well, like, you must have been pretty persuasive since he didn't raise the subject. Right, right, right. I know I was man, doing the fun. comic was, book business is I, fantastic. I was just I had I had a very good life, and uh, so he explained to me that he was going to run for president. We talked about sort of his thinking about what he wanted it to be like. Um, you know, at that point, he had already uh, talked to a number of consultants. You know, post no, not a pollster at that time. We didn't have a pollster till the fall, but you know, the TV guys and the digital guys and. You know, it all seemed very expensive to him, uh, which it is, as you know, very yes. expensive. And 
I, you know, I, I think of some of you wanted somebody to help sort all of that. Yeah, out. and like somebody he was clearly in his corner, right? Make um, sure he didn't get ripped off. Right, and that things were done the way he wanted them done, that he wasn't, you know, consumed by consultant's view of what he should be or say, right? Uh, he, he's always been super resistant to that, which is one of his... Right, appeals. Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, he certainly understood the value that, you know, people can raise money online or people that can run a social media campaign or people that can create TV commercials or people that, you know, and ultimately people that can poll. You know, he understands the value of these things, but he doesn't want to be consumed by them, right? And so uh, so he finally put his cards on the table and said, will you do this? Uh, yes, and we talked, you know, uh, we talked about, and, and I might be the only one, probably maybe even more than than he was, convinced that not that he would win, but that he could win. Because I had just seen it in Vermont, and... You know, people have uh, a view of him, and it's you know it's largely a stereotypical view at, at this point about who he appeals to and you know how people relate to him. But you know, I saw you know rural people, otherwise Republican, rural people who love Bernie Sanders. I mean, I remember very distinctly. He and I went to a Strawberry Festival, Saint Anne Shrine in the in the islands in in uh, in Lake Champlain, and we went to the cafeteria. This was very early morning for governor, I think, very early on. And we were in a, ca- a cafeteria, and there were a bunch of uh, French-Canadian ladies there. I mean, they were Vermonters, but French-Canadian heritage. Looked like my grandmother. Um, behind the counter, you know, with like the Jello and the, you know, the metal bars you run your tray down. And they were literally, David, crawling through the food to get to Bernie Sanders. Um, and this was very early on. And so he has always had this connection with uh, rural people uh, that I think people just don't understand. And you saw in the primaries— you know, and I've talked to, you know, I'm actually uh, have great relations with a lot of the senior Hillary people now, uh, having worked with them in the general election. And they didn't get it either until later in the campaign that, in fact, Bernie Sanders was going to do well with rural Democrats, with quote unquote moderate Democrats. He did much better with those voters than Hillary Clinton did, right? When you, and, you know, they were at one point trying to drive those voters out to counter him. And in fact, they were helping him. You know, so let's dive in for a second into that appeal. I mean, there's a lot been made of sort of the the fact that Trump energized these rural voters, that Sanders energized these rural voters, that there were some populist themes in common on trade, for example. Um, uh, how much of it, how much of what evolved in that campaign was about him, and how much was it about about Hillary, who, for all her strengths, was and uh, was true in two thousand and eight as well. Really, kind of a, a uh, avatar of of the status quo, a very well established Washington figure who was associated with, um, uh, you know, the the establishment in Washington in in every conceivable way. Right. Right. Look, I you know elections are binary, so particularly you know we have a two-person race. It's a choice. Obviously. With apologies and, to Governor O'Malley, yes, yeah, right. Well, it became binary very quick, very, <laughs> yes. very, very quickly. I mean, just like in you know two thousand eight. I mean, John Edwards was did not play the role in that race that he played in two thousand four, where you know where he was one of the top two 
uh, people. But we had, you know, the, that field was, uh, you know, people forget it was Joe Joe Biden and Chris Dodd and yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Richardson. And there were other, you know, serious people uh, in that race. That field, you, you, you had, it was advantageous to be in a binary race. Yes. No, no, that's exactly right. Um, but, you know, and then Barack Obama was certainly the outside outsider yes. candidate in that primary. There's no doubt uh, about that. But I look, I do think that there is uh, a lot of discontent in the country. There's a lot of uh, anxiety uh, in the country. I think it's it's largely economic, but manifests itself uh, in other ways. And I think that the Clinton people didn't sort of get that uh, in 2016. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the policy people she had around her were very uh, much more conservative. Not, I'm not mean Republican, but I mean conservative and cautious. Uh, and I Incre- think incremental in there. Yeah, and I think that they had to suddenly Bernie caught on, and they they really tried to catch up, right? I mean, her she was not for a fifteen dollar minimum wage until she got to New York, and she was for you know there was like an evolution in her policy prescriptions. They kept getting more and more left to try to catch but up with the sense party was, was. That was problematical. As well, because one of inauthenticity was one of the charges exactly, that stuck. Yes. And so, if you try and change in order to catch up, you're also opening yourself up to even more questions about right. what you actually feel strongly about. No, that's right. Look, I, you know, the polling was like at the very beginning of the race, the polling was, at least that I saw, was pretty clear that Hillary Clinton was very popular with self identified Democrats. I mean, her popularity was very high. Uh, you know, Obama was slightly higher, but, you know, he's beloved by uh, Democrats. But she had a real problem. This is before any engagement with Bernie. She had a problem with younger voters, and she had a problem with independent voters. And as you know, in most places in this country, independent voters can participate in the Democratic primary process. And her favorables, when you got to a, a democratically leaning independent, they weren't like off a cliff. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of uh, there's been a lot of like, well, Bern- you talk about would Bernie have won or not won, and obviously the Clinton people say, well, he would have had all these attacks against him, and that she already had these attacks against her, but they had landed on her, uh, and she was carrying that baggage, and it had really hurt her with independent voters. And in a general election, as you know, that's 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 a, a big, you know, what, what are you going to tell independent voters who have a fixed notion of you from decades that's going to change their mind, right? When you start with high negatives with independent voters, I, it's just a, it's a real challenge. There are, uh, you know, everybody has their view in hindsight. There are people uh, who are close to her who would say, you guys cost her the general because the primary was so uh, vituperative, so difficult, so lengthy, so costly, uh, I know you guys were helpful to her in the general, as you point out. You work with them in the general, but uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think that that is just one hundred percent wrong. Frankly, I mean, if you look at if you look at the tone and tenor of that twenty sixteen race compared to two thousand eight, it was a much tamer exchange than in two thousand eight. Frankly, and uh, you know, I, I always look back to, I, I actually believe in long primaries. I think it actually benefits Democrats. Media only likes to cover conflict. And as soon as the conflict well, goes away, the coverage goes away. In 2008, we absolutely, I mean, we wanted to end it early. Right. Nobody really wants to go through a long primary. I came to believe that people wanted to see Obama run the full course right. because he was a young guy and not with not a lot of ex- Washington experience. So they were testing him. But um, it also was true that from an organizational standpoint, having to run races in 50 states yes. uh, created uh, 
you know, uh, mom, you know it forward momentum in those states and organizations and so on that uh, was good. And and the race dominated, you know, McCain, John McCain was the candidate in 2008 exactly. for the problem. Couldn't break into the story because the, everyone was focused on the Democratic race. Well, and you look at 2004 when Edwards leaves the race in April, like the cover, media coverage of Kerry just goes away until the convention. And then the next thing we know, he's being swift-boated in August. Meanwhile, the Republican administration, I was on the, uh, I was on the Hill then, they would, they would trot out a cabinet secretary or high-level government official literally on the hour and dominate the news for the entire, you know, Kerry could not break through. But that was because the primary was over, the quote-unquote conflict was gone, and the media went away. I guess the essence of the, uh, the, the uh, suggestion they're making is some of the themes that you guys developed against her in the primaries became themes that Trump picked up on. And in fact, Trump loved to quote Bernie Sanders against her mischievous I guess that's a benign way of saying yeah, it. That is, he that is. Is benign, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, that is. Yeah. That is. But uh, so there is that. You guys opened up some wounds that were that were hard to to heal. I'm not sure that those wounds weren't there before the campaign mm-hmm. started. I mean, as I pointed out, you know, the independent voters uh, had difficulty with Hillary Clinton before the campaign was even engaged, and it was largely on the issue of trustworthiness. Uh, that was something that they came to the election with. That was not something that was created by our campaign. And, and frankly, David, I you know I, I were do- there moments when you talked to when uh, before you had many debates. Some of them were pretty. Uh, there were there were some pretty uh, sharp exchanges. New York was we- probably the sharpest. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I I remember it well. We were on the we were on the ropes. We had to do well in New York. Mm-hmm. Did not and what kind of conversations did you have about how far he was willing to go? Yeah, well, he was, you know, so for instance, you know, he did not go after the foundation, right? That would have been clearly something that somebody could have gone after. He didn't want to go there. You, you remember he famously said in the November at the Las Vegas, Tired the first the one, tire of the damn emails. But the point being, it's dominating the conversation. Let's talk about, he wanted to talk about single-payer health care. He wanted to talk about the $15 minimum wage, climate change. He wanted to talk about these issues. Uh, and that probably, though, was a very big moment for him when he said that, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Because it was unlike what people expect from politicians uh, not to uh, not to jump in on on an opportunity like that. Right. And he, you know, I mean, he doesn't go after people's personalities or their personal life. It's just he just he's not interested in that kind of politics. He didn't, he, you know, he always wants to. You know, if he had won, he would have wanted to have won on the basis of the ideas that he was putting forward so that he would have in some way a mandate to push those ideas through. Because it's not, per- you know, it's not personal for him. As he often tells me, he goes, look, I, you know where I come from. I wasn't somebody who was born and groomed to be president of the United States. I don't have to be president of the United States. And that's ap- that's absolutely true. He's not somebody who's, you know, was groomed from a child to be the next leader of the free world. That's not who he is. Not, not back in Brooklyn, they weren't. There, nobody when said, he was training in Superman Madison Comics High School in Brooklyn, they didn't say, "Hey, that guy looks like he could be president <laughs> right. of the United States." Exactly. Hey, did uh, you yourself had some pretty? You, you were a fierce advocate for your guy, and you had some really big rows, particularly about the process itself and uh, what you felt was the stacking of the process. Uh, against him, and I assume you, to this day you feel that way. I think you've written oh, about I, it, and you know, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it was well. We know Donna Brazil exposed 
that in the summer of 2015, you know, there's a document between Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the Clinton campaign essentially giving them control over staffing and messaging. And uh, that was certainly not something that was revealed during the campaign. But there were enough other things. It's clear that the Clinton campaign dictated the debate schedule, uh, including where and when and how many there would be. That was dictated by them. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Tom Perez, I think, is in a much different position. I think he will be, a, regardless of who's the candidate, will be a much uh, you know, more honest broker. honest broker. I mean, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you know, you, you remember the point at which she shut off our data because a couple of low-level staffers, you know, took advantage of a breach in the firewall. I mean, you know. Well, the, 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 theory, the, the charge was that you guys had stolen data from yeah, the which Clinton of course, campaign. Which the subsequent investigation demonstrated, you know, which we paid for, uh, showed by a, a contractor picked by the DNC, there was no data stolen. You know, it was modeling data. You would have had to memorize, you know, 10,000 personal lists in the course of 30 or 40 seconds in order to have, to have data um, taken. You, you should answer. I, I didn't ask you when you brought it up before. Do you think he would have beaten? Do you think Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump? Oh, ab- absolutely. I do think he would have beaten Trump. And because he would not, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, you look at Michigan, uh, Hillary Clinton lost Michigan in the primary. She lost in the general election in exactly the same way. You know, there was depressed turnout in Detroit and Wayne County. And then overwhelming turnout against her everywhere else, small towns, rural areas, suburbs. Um, and he, it was, it was an identity, you know, Bernie Sanders would not have lost Michigan, would not have lost Wisconsin, you know, interesting would not thing have lost about Pennsylvania. That, Jeff, I hear you. And, um, and, and I don't know the answer to the question really, but, um, she kind of cleaned his clock among, uh, African-American voters in the primary. So why do you think they'd be more enthusiastic well, about him yeah, in the see, general? That's not, so that's the narrative, right? And early in the campaign, that was true. By the time we get to Michigan, He's going toe-to-toe with her with African-American voters under 40. Uh, by the time we get to Pennsylvania, when the campaign, in fact, is tanking, basically our campaign after New York started steady decline, uh, he was doing better than she was with African-Americans under 40. We only lost the African-American vote in Pennsylvania by 10 points. I think we lost the overall state by more, so we're doing better with black voters. Because African-American we- voters uh, under 40 are not. A majority of African American voters. No, well, that's right. But you know, this was an issue throughout the campaign, David. If you look at voters over yeah sixty, no, I was watching of any it race. Time, it, does, yeah. it doesn't. It, it was that was not. You know what? What is true is that according to the exit polls, the percentage of African American voters who are millennials is much smaller than in other communities. So in the exit polls, it was twelve percent of African American voters were millennials. In the non African American community, in Democratic primaries, it was eighteen mm-hmm. percent. Uh, and so that. It, you know, made us look like we were doing even worse with African-American mm-hmm. voters, but it was primarily, it had a lot to do with the age of the electorate and not the race of the electorate. But I will admit that it, you know, certainly in the South at the beginning. Uh, he, it was crucial. It was. It, you know, this is important because you and I were talking before we started rolling about the fact that uh, there are a lot of people who aren't run for president who talk about it as if it's, uh, you know, like the voice or something, and you just kind of right. perform and then everybody right. votes. It's a process. Yes. And it begins in Iowa and you have to, and, and New Hampshire, um, you know, you've got Nevada and, and, and then South Carolina, where the right. vote is uh, a majority African American vote in the primary. Uh, and the question is, and even now with the California primary, now it's been moved back. So early voting will begin on the day of the Iowa caucuses. You have to figure out how you're going to navigate this because if you don't, you know, there's not going to be a binary choice in 2000 right. and uh, 
20, this is like, you know, they're going to be... uh, The multitudes. Yes, it's going to be... I mean, it's easier to list the number of Democrats who aren't thinking of running for uh, president than those who are. So only a few are going to come through that funnel that is Iowa, New Hampshire. and, And if you do survive then becomes really important how you can compete with African-American voters who Absolutely. have a disproportionate uh, impact on some of these primaries, South Carolina, Super Tuesday primaries, these Southern primaries, um, and, and the cost of it. How much do you think it'll cost uh, a candidate to uh, just run the first four races, You know, run through the South Carolina primary into Super Tuesday this time? Well, I, you know, as you point out, you know, California will start voting when Iowa's voting. So you have to be advertising even, you have to, you know, you have to be a couple of weeks early even there. Which so, is enormously Yeah, well, so that's expensive. 50 million. I mean, if you want to own a full flight of six weeks of TV in California, what are you talking about? 40, yeah. 50 million dollars, yes. right? Yes. And Iowa, it's probably 16, 15, 16 million. You know, New Hampshire, because of your advertising Boston, out of Boston, Boston market, Media yeah. Market, is another, it's probably similar. You know, Nevada is cheaper, but I mean, it's probably six or seven. Yeah, yeah. South Carolina could be three or four. I mean, so and then you know, and that's right, just for TV. That that doesn't right, even not speak to flying your candidate around on a plane. And the fact that you know, f- a couple of days after South Carolina, a whole slew of other states are voting. Right? You got you know, Minnesota, Colorado, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, uh, and so right. if if you have to advertise simultaneously in all those places, by the time you get to Super Tuesday, I mean, just on television, you might have to spend $150 million. Yeah, which is unbelievable, really, and does speak to, right away, a differentiator if candidates can do that. Your candidate could, uh, presumably, because he hasn't uh, developed a base around the country. So I have to ask you the question uh, as to um, uh, where do you think his head is right now? Well, you know, I speak to him, you know, with him about it often. Um, you know, it, it, you know, one, one question that sort of weighs on him, and I, because he's a serious guy, he wants to make sure that Trump is beaten in 2020. Uh, and he wants to be very confident that if he runs, he's running because he's the person who's best able to do that. Now, I think he is, but I'm not the candidate. Uh, and if he decides he is, I think the chance of running is much higher. I think if he... What about age, Jeff? I mean, uh, you know, I know he's an energetic guy. Anybody who watches him on TV can see that. But there are certain immutable laws. Apparently of, not, uh, David. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're willing to test that. But, I mean, I've, I've been with a candidate in, 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 I've been in several candidates in presidential races. I know... Uh, what they exact. I know what the presidency exacts. How much of a consideration is that? Yeah, look, you know, chronological age is one thing. You know, his biological age has to be, has to be, you know, his body has to just be younger. I mean, the guy puts, you know, he puts 23-year-old media people, you know, to shame. They would try to follow him around. I mean, he's the hardest working person I know. He doesn't stop. Um, So this isn't a concern for you? Not, not for me. In terms of his ability to do it, absolutely not. No, if I thought, no, if I thought he was going to look, the guy has had the guy, the guy has had an illustrious career. The guy's a United States senator. He was close runner up for president. He got forty three percent. Part of, of having delegates. an illustrious I mean, career is you've been around a while, right? He has been around for a while. So, like, there's not. If he decides to not run for president, 
you know, the guy's galvanized a whole generation yeah. of young people to get involved in politics. He's changed the debate in this country Without around question. issues. I mean, so like he has nothing to prove mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, I think he'd be a great president. I think he could institutionalize a lot of the policies that he has been advocating that have caught fire around the country. Last time he ran, as you point out, uh, it was he, he and Hillary uh, basically alone. Uh, this time, as we point out, there's going to be a large field. Right. Some of them are right in his lane. Elizabeth Warren, who's already announced that she's going to seriously consider it, which I would take as a kind of An, very a strong signal and everything she's doing suggests it, that she's right. going to run. They do uh, share uh, a base on the sort of populist left. She has uh, the additional uh, quality of of being a woman, Mm-hmm. Which I think, especially in this day and age, is 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 uh, is a valuable asset and will be in the primaries sure. uh, in two thousand and twenty. I saw a poll uh, that was just done recently in Iowa of caucus goers, and um, it had Biden ahead substantially, and then uh, Warren was second, and Sanders narrowly behind her. Essentially, they were splitting. Uh, what would I think have been the Sanders vote? Um, so, can they both run in the same race and be successful? Well, and you're and you're right. There was a BuzzFeed story recently about this sort of relationship of you know Warren versus Sanders. And I mean, I think you're right to say that it's his lane. I mean, he ran last time when she did not. Um, you know, I think there is some resentment among some of his people that she did she supported Hillary Clinton and not him. Um, but I, I do th- look. I do think in a crowded field there is room for both of them. I've seen other research. Did she support Clinton? I thought she, she was did. neutral. No, no, she ended up supporting Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So um, they're, uh, you know, and I've seen other research. Um, and what you have to understand about Iowa, and uh, you know, how Bernie Sanders, I think, he probably won the popular vote in Iowa. But as you know, they don't report the popular vote, and they will now. They have mm-hmm. to now under new Democratic rules, but they didn't then. Is you know he changed the nature of the electorate in Iowa. You know, everybody thought there was going to be 135,000 people show, showing up, uh, and there was 170,000 people. And you know, in that book Shattered, they talk about it. The Hillary people were shocked that of those new voters, you know, they were they thought they'd be like two to one for Bernie or 60 right. 40, and there were 10 to one for. There's Bernie. no one competing for the. There are going to be a lot of you know the Kamala yeah, Harris and perhaps Cory Booker and others who. Will be all competing for these. No, votes. that's right. But I think you know. I think Bernie Sanders has a unique appeal with voters. I really mm-hmm. do. Particularly the voters that we're talking about, which is, you know, we would call low propensity voters, voters who were less likely to vote. He just has an appeal with those voters at, at, uh, that others are not. I'll have. tell you one other thing. He has. He has one loyal friend in you, and uh, I'm sure that whatever he does, that you will be in the thick of it. Uh, because your conscience won't allow you to sell comic books. hang around the co- comic book store while that's all going on. Jeff Weaver, it's great to be with you, uh, and thank you so much for coming to the Institute of Politics. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, Visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.